Money, as they say, is the root of all evil. This saying is especially poignant now, as central banking institutions and the fractional reserve system are wreaking havoc on the global economy. Bitcoin as an alternative to the fiat system might be a legitimate escape hatch. In this podcast, I sit down with brilliant individuals who think critically about the world and who recognize this technology's possible implications. So, you know, I checked out your Twitter the other day. It was uh, July 4th, I think, and you had that big brisket on there. And uh, <laughs> yeah, my mouth was watering, dude. How was it? Yeah, I got to tell you, uh, it was the best brisket I've ever ever smoked. It was awesome. Uh, so it was a huge brisket, um, and it's it was Wagyu. So, because uh, the, the only one I could find on late notice was... Uh, was from snake river and they have wagyu and so it was awesome uh i i i'm waiting for i don't think i can make it to labor day to smoke another one let's put it that way <laughs> I, I saw the photo and like my mouth was watering so i had to ask um was- so so for anybody that um doesn't know the name james lavish um so they're new to our show or new to you can you just tell us a little bit about yourself Sure. Uh, well, first of all, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, so I've been an institutional investor in hedge funds and private equity and that world for a lot of years, uh, just about 30. And so I started out on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and I traded things uh, that were, you know, arbitrage. Uh, so you were trying to capture in- inefficiencies between two different securities those are gone now with computers and spreadsheets Then you just, that type of arbitrage isn't there anymore. So, but anyway, so I, uh, I've been in that world for a long time and I came to Bitcoin in really late, uh, though we're still early. I came to Bitcoin in, in 2020, uh, went during the lockdown and I was leaving my, my position and my son who is in college said, Hey dad, I think you've got to give this cryptocurrency a, another shot. Because he knew I'd looked at Bitcoin years prior, and so um, so I did. And when I when I started talking to people, and I got up and invited up on stage uh, on Twitter Spaces and onto podcasts and whatever, <clears throat> um, because of my experience, um, I quickly realized that wow, there's we we live in a world that is completely opaque to the outside and in the in the high finance world and. It, you know, to be honest with you, Milan, that, that kind of, uh, that, that annoyed me, it frustrated me that it, it it's almost purposeful, as we were saying, right before we started this podcast, it's, it's like obfuscation, uh, purposeful. And so uh, I wanted to break down those barriers and, and simplify things for people. And that's, that's pretty much how I, I started posting things on Twitter and, uh, and then writing my newsletter and, uh, and just trying to, to bridge that gap. Originally, I thought I was going to bridge it between institutional investors and uh, and Bitcoiners. And so they would understand, the institutional investors would understand why Bitcoin is so important. Um, but then I realized as I started talking and started explaining things, I realized, you know what, I, I want to dial it back a little bit and broaden it out and reach the audience of people who just don't understand how money works how the financial world works. And it's not anybody's fault. We're just not taught these things. We're not taught them in grade school. We're not taught them in high school. We're not taught them even in in college, in economics courses in college, uh, in finance courses in college. 
I've had MBAs come up to me and say, I've never understood how the Fed works like it does until listening to you guys. And so, and that, and that's what I, that's, that's how I got here and why I'm here is to, uh, is to kind of help people along that path. That's awesome. That kind of sounds like what I'm trying to do, sort of bridge the gap, especially for people just entering the space that don't have that sort of financial background. Um, you know, for the listeners out there, my full-time job is actually as an elementary school teacher. And it wasn't long ago that I kind of went around asking some of the staff, what is money backed by? And most of the people that I asked actually had no idea what I was even asking. They're like, what do you mean? And then I, I kind of had to think like, okay, how can I reframe that question? But the best answer I got from any of my colleagues was, uh, it's backed by the CDIC. And I kind of chuckled. I'm like, okay, that's not a bad answer. Like, you know, it could be worse. You, you could have said gold or yeah. who knows what else. Um, but, but, you know, I've heard- it's backed by the by the U.S. military. It's backed by oil. It's backed right. by yeah. So, but like good, to, good faith of the U.S. government. Exactly right, and, and you know that kind of helped me um, really understand that like people really don't know, and as you said, it's like not something that we're taught in school, and mm. it isn't intentional. Like when I look at curriculum, it, it's not like um, they they don't talk about it. In fact. Um, forget what grade level specifically, but they say that like one expectation of teachers is that we, we show students that, uh, you know, money and debt are sort of inextricably linked. Um, I don't think most people get into that rabbit hole, so to speak. Um, but I've tried to take what I've learned in the Bitcoin space over the couple of years, uh, that I've been in it personally and try to try to use that in my, uh, uh, frame of teaching. So like we did a unit on conservation of energy, and of course, I I took everything I've been learning from Bitcoin mining and kind of applying that in different ways without necessarily shaping minds towards Bitcoin. Right. Um, right. So, all right, awesome. Um, my feeling is that the majority of people have no idea how bad the situation is globally um, as far as the economy goes. Like, we know inflation's hot. You know, we've been talking about this for the last couple of years. Uh, gas is expensive. Housing is expensive. Um, everything costs more. But I don't think people actually know just how bad things are. So you think you can give us kind of like a an overall perspective of how bad it is in the U.S. and maybe the the world overall? Yeah, let's define bad first, right? So the problem is um, it's not it's not that the economy it's not that we're in a deep recession we're in a depression depression right now. That's that this is not the case. You can see the conflicting data out there. There's you know the very high employment. Uh, that and we still have inflation. Um, you know, uh, you can see that uh, that certain sectors are starting to roll over, but real estate's still very, very pricey. But there are a lot of reasons for that. So let's just back it up. And the issue is just the sheer amount of debt that is in the world, right? So especially at the sovereign level, these countries have taken on so much debt. Okay. What does that mean and why does that matter? Well, first of all, debt in and of itself is not a bad thing, right? So for your listeners, it's not a terrible thing to have a mortgage. It's not a terrible thing to have low interest rate debt if you can borrow money at a certain rate that you are then producing something with it. Okay, so give an example. It, what it does is, is it debt, in, in effect, it pulls future productivity into the now right? So if you're going to open a restaurant, for instance, I don't suggest that anybody does, but if you're going to do that, 
you know, you need to borrow money to lease the space, to build out the space, to get the ovens and get them, you know, the, the, uh, the dining ware and the cookware and all of that, <clears throat> you've got to borrow money in order to have salaries, or you're going to have to put all equity into it, just cash, right? So most people don't do that. What they'll do is they'll borrow money from a bank, they'll open the restaurant, they'll start generating revenue and start generating some product. And uh, so they pulled forward that, that, uh, the, that, you know, the revenue that otherwise would have taken years to build up to, right? So you can be bigger, you can be, you can build out more, right? So that's not bad. The problem is um, most of that debt would be secured by something, um, you know, uh, whether it's a personal personal security or it's secured by the assets that you're buying, whatever. The problem is these sovereigns are not, the, the sovereign debt is not really secured by anything. It's secured by the, the, the good faith of the U.S. government, right? So, um, or the good faith of the German government or you know, so the problem is that the, the the governments have not been kept in check. And so you're seeing the the debt loads just grow and grow and grow and grow. And therein lies the issue is because it it is trickled down. It's trickled up to the sovereign level because in 2008, the the United States government monetized a lot of the debt and bailed out banks. Right. So the issue is that there's debt everywhere. And there's hundreds and hundreds of trillions of dollars of it, right? So in it's, I think Greg Foss has made the calculation, it's close to $700 trillion. And that doesn't include, include derivatives, right? So, um, and that's just a number that people can't get their head around. So let's, let's boil it down. So in the United States, our debt to GDP is over 135%. What does that mean? That means that we've borrowed 135% of what our gross domestic product is. All right. So the issue there is, well, that gross domestic product is what pays for that debt, but only a portion of it does. It's the taxes on that product that pays for that debt. Right. So the issue is that we're running the U.S. government is spending so much money and we're borrowing so much every year because we're running deficits. And every year that we run deficits and interest rates go higher, those deficits get larger. Right. And so it's like a it's like a consumer who's got a credit card. So say you're a single parent and uh, and you're trying to keep up. Right. And you've got two jobs. You can't work anymore. Uh, maybe you have three jobs. You're tapped out on the income side. So you've but you've got kids. You've got you know, you've got to pay for food. You've got to pay for your house. You've got to pay for your car to get to your jobs. Right. So these are these are expenses that are mandatory. And you have to pay them. Well, if you start start falling behind and you can't pay for one of those items, what are you going to do? Say your car breaks down, you know, and you got to pay for that. Or say your kids need something for school or they need clothes or they're growing, you know, they need food. Well, you're going to charge that. You're going to charge that food on the credit card. And sooner or later, that credit card will get maxed out and you're paying super high interest on it. And you're going to have to do what? You take out another credit card. And then the whole cycle starts again. And then you're going to max that out. And it's eventually your credit rating goes down. The expenses on those credit cards go up and you're in what's called the debt spiral. You simply can't get out of it. You have to declare bankruptcy and start over. Well, the United States cannot declare bankruptcy, right? And on one hand, it's got the benefit that 
it can borrow forever, right? So as long as Congress approves the debt ceiling to ad finitum, right? So um, as, as long as they approve them to spend, which they do, you've seen the debt limit raised every single time we hit it. So they're going to continue doing that. But on the flip side, they cannot default. So what do they do? Well, they borrow more and they pay. So when bonds mature, instead of having enough earnings to pay for that, our earnings that they tax, they just issue more treasuries and borrow more. And so that limit keeps going. So this, this spiral is on. We, we, we cannot get out of this. And so that's the issue. And so when we talk about, you know, how bad the economy is, it's, it's really more of how, uh, how dangerously close to the precipice we are of a credit event of causing everything to collapse. So if you have something like the, like we saw in the banking crisis in the last few months, if you have a bank that has doesn't have enough deposits in reserves it doesn't have enough reserves for its depositors and depositors want their money back they don't have the money well then they have to sell bonds that are now worth a lot less because interest rates are up and it's just that whole dynamic of that indebtedness and you can see how if one of those fails well then their counterparties will fail and their counterparties will fail and their counterpart and it's called contagion and that's the issue. The issue is how just how we're teetering on the edge with all this debt. And what what worries me is not that we just have all of a sudden the economy just shuts down. We have we have, um, you know, millions and millions of people laid off. And then we have massive deflation because nobody has jobs and we spending money. We go into Great Depression. I'm less worried about that happening. You know, we could slide into something like that. But I'm more concerned about any of these Western developed nations, especially the United States and Europe and Japan, of having some sort of credit event that causes that type of uh, you know, contagion and a, a catastrophic collapse of the markets. And that's where the danger is, in my opinion. Right. Do you feel like the, <clears throat> the uh, recent bank failures that we saw back in, I guess it was March, is that us seeing the sort of beginnings of that fracturing? Well, it's it was an indication that can happen, right? So it's, we've had a few instances of this, right? So we had, first of all, back a year ago, uh, the EU finally, after they saw over 10% inflation, they finally decided, the ECB finally decided to start raising rates. And, you know, the moment they did that, it's the their... Um, EU and the UK kind of were operating almost lockstep. The moment they started to do that, you saw that they they started having problem on the credit side. So immediately when the ECB raised rates, they immediately stepped in and said, hey, don't worry about Italy and Spain and Portugal, because investors started selling those bonds in the in the banks and and in their their, their respective treasuries, right? And the problem was that the ECB had to come in and do what's called yield curve control immediately to make sure that those bond yields didn't get out of control, which could cause enough stress on their banks in those countries that they could have a collapse. 
So they stepped right in and, and immediately said, no, we have, we have something called the, a, a, a transition protection instrument, whatever the hell that is. And all it means is they were going to go in and buy bonds in order to make sure that the markets were stable. That's just raising rates from negative to just barely positive or to zero, right? And so that was the first instance. And then the second instance was when the UK, uh, they had a, a new finance minister come in and say, we're going to have these massive tax cuts. And when asked how they wanted how they were going to pay for it, they didn't really have an answer. And so the gilt market, the UK uh, treasury bonds, they sold off immediately. And what happened? Well, because all of their pension funds have been they've been starved for yield. They were using these things called leveraged debt instruments that were basically just saying, look, the bonds, the government bonds are super safe. We can lever them two, three, five times to one, and we'll get, you know, two, three, five times a return on those. But remember, they were operating a near zero interest rate environment, Z-I-R-P, zero interest rate policy, kept those returns very low. Well, pension funds need returns in order to pay future pensions, right? So they were they were manipulating their returns by using derivatives. Well, as soon as those rates went up, what happened? Those gilts collapsed and they started getting margin calls. And the margin calls forced them to sell gilts, which made the gilts go down more, which made other pensions have to sell gilts and have, have margin calls, which called it, caused a snowball effect. And literally... The, the pension funds, they walked into the BOE, the Bank of England, and said, hey, you've got to step in here or we are literally going to collapse and be, we're, we're going to default tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon, unless you step in now. And so they had no choice but to step in and buy gilts. Why? Because there's so much debt. There's so much leverage in the system. Again, and then you fast forward to this last spring when you had the U.S. banks. Well, the issue there was they were buying treasuries to hold in reserve in order to have enough reserves against their depositors. But there were there were uh, rumblings of some, you know, after all of the FTX issues and you had the uh, nefarious and illegal activities going on in crypto well, you had you had startups, you had these venture funds that were starting to get worried about their capital at these banks and hearing that they were undercapitalized, which meant that they didn't have enough reserves to cover depositors. That's a judgment call by the bank. The banks have these, they have their uh, risk management tools that they're supposed to be following, but you know, they listened to the Fed and the Fed said, you know, the, the inflation transition, it's transitory not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Rates won't be going up. I mean, they put out in December of 2021, they put out a, a uh, their Fed plot, their dot plot that showed that the average, the average governor, if you took all of their, you know, their, their forward looking rates, they thought that the, the rates were going to be in a year, they were, they said they were going to be at like 86 basis points. Well, they were wrong by about 4%, which is 400% on, you know, on that, the, that rate. So it was so, they were so, they were for these regional banks that listened to them, they were catastrophically wrong. So 
they were buying these treasuries and putting them in their reserves thinking, well, we'll just hold them to maturity, no problem. But when you have to go and sell them in the market and they've been they've been marked down 25 or 30%, why? Because rates went straight up, right? And so bond prices go down when rates go higher. And so if you have to sell a bond in the market before maturity, it's going to be at market price. And so you've got to take the loss on it. And that's the issue there. Again, indebtedness, you know, there was a, there was a, they, they had an interest rate problem. They didn't match the interest rate with, uh, and their, their, they didn't match their, their reserves with their deposits. And it, it was just a mess. So again, the Fed had to come in, the Treasury had to come in and save them. And so the question is, what's going to be the next event? Not, not whether or not it will be, but when. And who's it going to be? You know, everybody's got their eyes all over the, the commercial real estate market. And that's an important market to have your eyes on. But the Treasury is all over it. The, the Fed is watching it. They're, they're keeping tabs on it. And I think that they're, you know, they're helping make sure in their oversight that these regional banks are, they are dealing with that, that possible issue. But in, in reality, there's nothing they can do if, these if the landlords the ones who have who have owned the owners of the property who have these non-recourse loans on them if they just dump them back to the bank at a loss well now it's on the bank's balance sheet and it's impaired and so they have to either work work out of it or try to sell it without losing too much money or try to re mortgage it to somebody else, it, it's a disaster and it's waiting to happen. And so the issue here comes, if we do have a sharp downturn in economic activity and the retail sector starts getting hit and you start seeing retailers walk away from their office or commercial uh, real estate, then you can have a snowball effect there. And then you've got both just both the uh, you know, the uh, professional workspace where you've got the, the, the office space and retail space, both um, being impaired at the same time. And that would cause uh, pretty, that, that, that could cause some major problems, especially for regional banks, because those are the ones who hold the mortgages to those notes. Does that make sense? It does. It, it's, a, it's definitely a scary situation. I like the analogy you used of the, the, you know, the credit card, because I was thinking about it as, you know, your credit card bill is so high, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. It gets to a point where you can't pay it off. And you're applying for other credit cards or lines of credit, whatever it is. The banks are saying, no, sorry, we can't do that for you. So what are you left doing? You're like, oh, I'm going to sell my camera. I'm going to sell my dog, whatever it is. And at that point, people know that you don't have any leverage over them. So they can say, oh, you know what? We'll give you uh, 50 cents on the dollar. Um, right. You know, the, the whole guilt situation in the UK, it, it kind of hits home for me because like as a teacher, you know, I, I expect that at some point in time, many years down the road, I'm going to rely on my pension. But I know that my pension fund has a certain amount of money in, I guess the equivalent would be the GICs that we have here. Um, mm -hmm. and, and if those blow up, like, what does that mean for my future? Does that mean my retirement is shot? Like, kind of why I, one reason why I hold Bitcoin. That's right. That's right. And that's and that's the issue right there is that look, 
the, all of these all of these uh, sovereign um, debt situations and all of this fiat, meaning it's not backed by anything, it's just backed by the, the governments. Well, eventually there, there's mistrust between them, right? So if you just look in Europe, they have something called Target 2, right? And so there's a settlement between countries that happens every night and it's electronic. Um, and so when when you have goods and services are, that are bought and sold in, in one region and need to be paid for in euros and they, and they go cross, cross region, well, the issue is that the ECB keeps track of this target, right? And so they settle them overnight. And then you've got debits and credits between the two. Well, if you look at that chart of all, all the countries there, well, basically every single country owes Germany money, right? So including the ECB itself. So the ECB is using capital to you know, perform the yield curve control, and they're basically borrowing it from Germany's balance sheet. Well, eventually that breaks. You know, Eventually Germany says, enough is enough because there's no mechanism to settle that there's no way for them to say okay everybody pay up we need we need our capital now so instead they're saying hey we may need a bailout from the ecb because the ecb has borrowed so much from us and the rest of the rest of europe has borrowed something like that's where we're at there and so that's pretty scary and the issue is at some point there's a loss of confidence in that currency, especially cross-border, you know? And so I don't know when it happens, but I don't see that, that that the euro is going to continue in operation for the next 100 years. And I just don't see how that's possible. I don't see how it's even possible for the U.S. dollar. I mean, and that's the scary one, because the U.S. dollar being the world reserve current, the global reserve currency, and the treasury being the global re reserve asset you know with the u.s treasury operating in in this perpetual deficit and it's not even their call their fault the treasury just does what the what congress tells them basically congress is borrowing money and the treasury is settling it you know it's their bank account and so people blame the treasury but the treasury is just doing what what legislation has uh, as approved and mandated. So they have to spend money. They don't have a choice but to spend money on those programs, Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and, you know, and all of the the defense spending. I mean, those are long-term contracts that you can't just unwind from, right? So they've got $800 billion there, $3.8 trillion of, of mandatory uh, entitlement expenses annually. You know, these are these are not going away. And so, the issue is that eventually we we get into this, this problem with this debt spiral. And even the treasury itself admits it. And they put out this paper. And then people are like, well, how could they possibly put out this paper that that condemns their 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 actions? And they're putting it out, I think, in front of Congress to say, hey, look, we can't keep on like this. So they put out this report that was literally titled um, An Unsustainable Path. And it shows the the the, um, the debt uh, to GDP increasing like this, and they showed it in a straight line. But we all know how it works with interest rates; it will go parabolic, right? So it's not a straight line like this that they're showing it. It's kind of a it's kind of a a uh, an optimistic view, right? It's more like this: once it once it hits an inflection point, it goes vertical, 
and they know it. And so they actually put out a report that said, this is an unsustainable path. We have got to get off this path. Well, how do you do that? You've got three choices, right? You, you can either spend less. So that's up to Congress. Well, who's, who in Congress is going to approve spending less across the board? That means that some of these constituents are going to be left out and they're going to lose votes. It's literally political suicide. So nobody will do that. And all they'll do is they'll blame the other guy. The Republicans will blame the Democrats. Democrats blame the Republicans. They go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and it always increases, right? So that's one thing they can do. And the second thing they can do is they can raise taxes, right? So again, you raise taxes, eventually that ends up putting a damper on productivity because it lessens the uh, the incentive to grow your business. It also uh, lessens the ability to because you lose uh, your you lose your your income that you can use on research and development. You lose the ability to hire more people and you know and broaden your reach. It, it ends up you get in the same place where you end up with the same amount of of GDP and same amount of taxes, right? So even if you raise taxes, it doesn't work. And the third thing you can do is well, you can just issue more debt. You can borrow more. And that's what we're going to continue doing until it gets to be to the point where the rest of the world realizes that we have such high inflation that it's not worth it to hold our treasuries. And that's where the problem starts. All right? Our inflation is coming back down. The Fed is, uh, you know, they're tightening the uh, the policy. They're, they're tightening uh, liquidity. So, there's not as much out there to uh, to fuel that inflation fire. They already they already printed enough money, so they're trying to drain money supply out of the system in order to get a handle on on inflation. But the reality is, they need inflation, and they know it. The Fed has a job, the Treasury has a job, and Congress has a job, and it's almost like they're not even talking to each other at times, because. The reality is the Treasury needs inflation in order to cover all, all the expenses that Congress has, you know, dumped on them. And so why do they need inflation? Because they need GDP, our productivity to go up in nominal, non-inflation terms, just the every, everyday dollars. They need them to go up. Well, how do you do that? You put more dollars in the system. You have more inflation. That way you're taxing a higher dollar base on debt that you issued years ago at a lower tax base or lower, sorry, dollar base. And so by, uh, you know, deflating your dollar, by inflating the currency, it's uh, you're, you're debasing those, that, that currency in the bonds. And so if you, you know, if I loan you a hundred dollars today, well, you're going to pay me back a hundred dollars in 10 years, say, and that'll be worth half of what it was. So it doesn't even matter if you're paying me five, six percent interest every year. It's not. It, it's going to be worth so much less. You know, it's going to be worth less than half, probably. So in real terms, and that's the issue: is that eventually, you know, we get called out on that, which brings us to BRICS, which you and I started talking about before we even started the show. And the the BRICS alliance is opting out. They want out of the dollar system. They want to defend themselves against this debasement and against the weaponization of the dollar. 
The U.S. Can dollar I, was weaponized. Yeah. Can I just interject for a second? Yeah, uh, please. I, I definitely want to touch on that, um, but I want to run it back a little bit because we, you know, you've mentioned U.S. Treasuries quite a few times, and um, it wasn't until I read Nick Batia's uh, "The Layered Money" that yeah. I really started to kind of understand what that even meant. Um, at least, at least for somebody who's non-American, uh, I did live in the states for a couple of years, but that was ages ago. Um, yeah. Anyways, you hear U.S. Treasuries, and it doesn't really have a meaning. So can you just give us a quick sort of TLDR on what a U.S. Treasury is? Yeah. So, I mean, basically, U.S. Treasury is just a uh, – it's an IOU from the U.S. government. So you you give uh, – they're issued by the U.S. Treasury, and it's just a bond. They can be anywhere from uh, um, a few weeks to, um, you know, four weeks, all the way up to a few months to – Two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you know, you can buy a treasury and it's just a, a promise that they will pay you a certain interest rate on those every single year, right? So when you buy them, you can buy them through a bank or you can buy them directly from the treasury. So you can either get the interest rate that goes to the bank that is holding them for you, their custodian, then it comes to you, or you can get it directly from the treasury into your bank account. There, there's a two different ways to do it. So when you buy that treasury, though, it's just you're just, you know, trusting the U.S. government's going to pay you back. They're going to pay you back what they owe you plus interest every year. Now, you know, the important part about that is that any country who has their their debt of that country based in their own currency will never default. Because no, not, they will never have a hard default where they just say, well, we're not going to pay this debt. Well, the, they won't do that because they can print more money to buy the debt, you know, themselves. What they do is they, they print money, they put it on the Fed's balance sheet. This just by clicking a button, basically, that cash goes on the Fed's balance sheet and the Fed, in effect, goes and buys those bonds themselves. Right and puts them on their balance sheet. And that's what we saw happen in 2020, right? So they they printed five trillion dollars and they went out into the market and bought all these, you know, tre U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. I mean, the way they do is they use the dealers, they use the J.P. Morgan's, the City City Groups, and the Wells Fargo's of the world, and then but they basically say you buy these and we're going to buy them from you today, and so that's what happens. And so because they can't really deal directly in the market with the Treasury. So you'll hear people say, oh, they don't do it. Well, they, that's what they do. The money goes on the Fed's books. The Fed goes, hey, Citigroup, go buy, you know, a few hundred million dollars of these bonds, a few hundred billion dollars of these bonds. They go out there and they do it. And then they come back and they say, okay, thanks. And they give them the money for it. It's like their dealer, right? So, but that's what it is in effect. And the issue is that we have way more out there than we'll ever be able to pay back. You know, we have 35, we have 30 at this point, actually, uh, you know, I had this up earlier today. We have $32.5 trillion worth of federal debt, which is up $1 trillion from last month. That's insane. There's a reason for that. It's insane. And people are like, God, we're going to be at 40 trillion by the end of the year. No, not really. The reason is because of the whole the debt ceiling issue. They drain the the uh, Treasury General account, which is like the Treasury's checking account. They drain that to pay all the the bills that they had due. 
to pay all the things that they needed to without defaulting. And so we came right up the, the, the precipice there and they finally just said, okay, we won't have a debt ceiling, but we won't approve any new spending. And so now the treasury doesn't really have a debt ceiling. And so they're just issuing treasuries in order to fill that, the TGA, the general account back up. And so they need to issue about a trillion dollars, which they've done. And so that's what's happened. And that's why the debt jumped like that. I'm trying like not to laugh. You know, Greg Foss always says how fiat is this Ponzi. And I find it funny because how often do we hear Bitcoin's a Ponzi? And, you know, Bitcoin's this like open, transparent thing that we can all really look into. Literally. Exactly. And yet, you know, we Bitcoiners get called out on having this thing that is apparently, you know, I don't even know how to describe it. The ultimate Ponzi is, you know, it's like, well, look, the... There's no way that the U.S. that the U.S. Treasury can just continue to operate like this forever. It's just not. It's just not possible, right? Well, so and we've been seeing. You know, we've seen China shed their U.S. Treasuries. Other countries are doing the same thing. We know that they're buying uh, more gold. They've been amassing gold. At least China, India, for the past at least ten years or so, and that that kind of you know, sort of transitions us well into this talk about BRICS. So for, for anybody that doesn't know, if you don't really follow geopolitics, BRICS is this sort of block of countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, Saudi Arabia joined recently. And there's a lot of other countries, it seems, that are sort of knocking on the door. So James, like, what is it that's actually sort of transpiring right now? Because it looks like sort of under the surface or not even under the surface, this is becoming pretty public now. It looks like there's a coordinated attack happening against the U.S. dollar. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, and I, you know, and I, and I, and I said that I said it looks like an attack on the dollar, but and they claim it's a defense against it. You know, but the reality is that you've got Russia just came out last week and said, yeah, we're gonna we're putting together a single gold-backed currency for the BRICS to operate on. Okay, so first of all, the for people to understand, um, though the countries that you named there, right, the Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, Saudi, uh, South Africa, they those those put together, okay, they uh, comprise now more global GDP on a percentage basis than the G7, right? So that's that's pretty substantial, okay, and so it's a, it's a big deal. And so the, you know, the issue is that they're talking about using a currency that operates outside the dollar system. Well, why are they going to do that? Well, there's, first of all, there's a couple of reasons. There are major reasons. You know, first of all, the U.S., and I'd start to say this before, the weaponizing U.S. dollar against Russia when, the, when Russia invaded Ukraine was was a massive policy error and the reason it was is because they cut they they seized a foreign central bank assets and froze them and then they froze them out of the swift banking system where it's just a, it's a settlement system it's a, it's like a messaging system that settles uh trade right uh it settles currency trade they froze them out of that. And 
So what it taught the world was, hey, if you cross against what the U.S. wants you to do, they may just seize your assets. How dumb. I mean, how, we, we're, we're demanding that the U.S. Treasury be used as the, the, base, the, the, the global reserve asset, and then we go and do that. So what do you think China says? What do you think Brazil says? Or India? They say, well, well, we don't want that to happen to us. So we want to figure out how to avoid that. All right. So China has been selling treasuries. Russia got out of as many as they can, if not all of them. You know, uh, Japan has been selling them for a different reason. They needed to shore up the yen. Uh, that's a That's a different issue. But the bigger issue is, well, all of that adds up to, well, there's those are massive sovereigns that are not buying treasuries now. And so as the U.S. Treasury continues to issue more and more treasuries and operate in a higher and more and more deficits and having to issue more and more every year, like we just said, they just issued a trillion dollars worth. Well, they drained a significant portion out of the the uh, what's called the reverse repo, which is just extra cash sitting on banks' balance sheets that were sitting idle. And uh, they basically drained those to sell these this last month. The, there's more issues that have to deal with that that we won't get into. But the bottom line is they're crowding out the marginal buyer. So who's going to buy all these? Once Citigroup and JP Morgan and Wells Fargo... You know, once they Bank of America, once they have enough of these and they can't own anymore, who's going to buy them? Who's going to buy the treasuries? You know, once you have all the foreign banks, all the that that trust us, all of our allies that are buying them, all of their pension funds are buying them, and then they're soaked up and there's no more room, who's going to buy them? The US Treasury. And so the BRICs know this, and they know that that just means that there's more money supply, that there's more money printing, which means there's higher inflation, which there's more inflation, which means the dollar's worth less, and they don't want to hold the dollars. They don't want to hold the dollars because they can be used against them. They can be frozen out from them, and they don't want to hold them because they're, they're, they're melting. They're a melting ice cube. They don't want to hold them. And so they're talking about, and they're, they're working on creating a currency for themselves to trade with and ha not having to operate in the U S dollar system. And so it has some economists and, and uh, investors on edge wondering, is this a, could this put the nail in the coffin of the U S treasury's gold reserve asset? And the reality is, um, okay. In theory, if they were able to pull it off, if these nations were able to trust each other, if they actually did have physical gold that was backing this currency amongst them, right? And any of their uh, any of their alliance there, any of the, any of the, that block go in and turn in their their BRICS currency and redeem it for gold. Well, if that was actually possible, they they had audits that they could do, and they could see it. They you know. That they confirm that it's real gold. It's not, you know, uh, bricks that are that are painted gold, right? So, if they could do all that, well, in theory, yeah, they could they could put a massive dent in the in the U.S. dollar as gold reserve currency and the and the and the treasury as the asset. Um, but the reality is, there's a lot of logistical 
issues with that. And even though they've been uh, they've been accumulating gold, they they certainly do not have enough to back that kind of GDP and that that big of a currency, at least not yet. That's number one. Number two, just logistically moving back and forth and having the audits. And I mean, if they were going to do that, where, the, where who's going to hold the gold? You know, is it going to be in Russia? Is it going to be in China? Are they each going to have some in their in their co you know located central reserve banks? And then who's going to are they going to trust each other? They're going to send in their their respective auditors to go check it out. You, can you see Xi allowing Putin's forces to come in and check it out, or vice versa? I mean, it's yeah, just, I've thought about that a lot. It's problematic, right? I mean, they don't. They're not. They have not shown to be trustworthy on their own. How are they going to be trustworthy amongst each other? It's like, sure, maybe thick as thieves, but you know, it it, it there's a lot of problems with it. Um, and I'm not saying that the well, yeah, you get it, you understand. Well, it, it kind of goes to show that like this idea of sound money, like a physical sound money, it does have its inherent problems with it. Um, so it sounds like what they're doing in a sense is they're calling out this fiat. Ponzi. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they're, they're trying to, they're trying to dent it and, uh, and make sure that everybody else understands it. And there's a little game theory going on here now, right? So you've got mm. all these countries who are applying to get in. You said that, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia, you also have Argentina, uh, Indonesia, Mexico, um, and Turkey that all want to, that have all either uh, applied or have, uh, have expressed interest in getting that's half of the g20 if you take those countries and add it to it that would be a pretty big dent you know they're gonna have to change the name yeah they have to change the name yeah (laughs) e20 minus right so So, like my sort of burning question with all this is if if they're successful where people or nations rather are getting rid they're shedding and buying less of these u.s treasuries what does that mean for the states because all of these publicly funded programs, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, all of a sudden that money's just no longer there because like you said, you can only increase taxation by so much. So you're relying on those bonds, are you not? Yeah, well, and then the, the issue is when do we get to the point and we're not there. We're not there. We're not gonna be there in the next year or two, I don't think. You know, it may take 10 years, it may take 40 years, but there will come to be a point I don't think it'll take 40. I think it'd be a lot less than that. But there will come to be a point where we have to print so much money. And it's not because just on this annual deficit situation, that can go on for a long time, a really long time. The problem is when you have so much debt and it's all the way through the system, right? It's all the way down to the individuals. When you have that much debt and there's all, there's all these counterparties and you have something happen like we were seeing in the regional banks this past fall or this past spring, when you have something like that happen, you have this, this, you know, this drawdown event that threatens to lock up the treasury market. That's where the problem is. And so when the treasury market is threatened to be locked up, that's when the treasury and the Fed have to get together and say, okay, we've got to shore this up, make sure it's okay, print some money, make sure that there's enough liquidity to keep it going. And when we have a major event, the next major event, they're not going to print five trillion. They're going to print 25 trillion. You know, it's going to be like that. And so that then the amount of liquidity it's needed to shore it up and the amount of extra M2 that's in the system and the amount of 
inflation that occurs from that, well, therein lies the problem. That's when you get to the point of, um, we, we're going to have to keep buying these treasuries because nobody else will. And if you look in, in Japan, they've been trying so hard to generate, they have a completely different economy than us, right? They're a net exporter. Their demographics are much older. They just it's a completely different uh, banking, you know, uh, situation. But they own over fifty percent of their own treasuries. The Bank of Japan, you know, their debt to GDP is uh, it's near three hundred percent. So I mean, it's over. I think it's two hundred and sixty-five percent right now. And uh, please don't quote me on that. We'll have to go back and fact check that. But it's it's over two hundred fifty percent. And so you know, it's. Uh, it's problematic to say the least. And, you know, it's between, it's a race between them and Europe to see who, who falters first. So. Um, now this being a, you know, a Bitcoin show, um, my question to you is if this does in fact happen where they launch this gold back currency and they go in that direction, what does yeah. that mean for Bitcoin price for Bitcoin adoption? I think everybody wants to know that. Yeah, well, I mean, like the, the smart thing to do would, would be to use Bitcoin. Like you just said, it's it's easily transferable, it's verifiable, you know, it's cheap to it's cheap to move. Uh, you know, it's trustless. They could they could verify between them like that. So the game theory is well, should the US go and start backing our treasuries with the with Bitcoin or the US dollar with Bitcoin? Well, that's a no-brainer. You know, I mean, they sh that that would be you've heard uh, you've heard Luke Roman talk about it recently, and that would be like a game changer knockout punch. They won't do it. You know, um, there's too much incentive for the large financial players in this country to remain on the fiat system that has so engrossed them with wealth that they're not incentivized to do anything else. They just want to keep playing this U.S. Treasury, U.S. dollar Ponzi and run it all the way to ground because they'll be worth so much money in their minds. And the reality is eventually you get to hyperinflation. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I do believe that U.S. dollar will be the last one standing. I don't believe that it will fail before anything else. I think it'll be the last one. And I think it can go on for a very, 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 very long time, you know? Um, so I'm less worried about the dollar. I'm more worried about, uh, like you just said, I'm more worried about keeping up with the inflation of it and the, and the Bitcoin being what it is to me is the best hedge against and the best, you know, uh, asset to hold long, long, long term. Yeah, it has tremendous volatility. You see it up 2%, 5%, 10%, down percent, down 10% from day to day. Um, however, when you have volatility in, in an appreciating asset, that's actually a good thing. And so um, it's a very good thing to hold in your portfolio, even if you just have a few percent. I happen to have more, you know, I have a lot of confidence in it. But what I do suggest and encourage your listeners to do is research. Research the, the the topics we're talking about today. Think about it. Think about what's really going on. Don't listen to the pundits. Don't listen to the politicians. Don't listen to the Fed. Don't listen to the Treasury. Do your own homework. Run the numbers and you can see it's all out there. It's not, this is not news. 
it's not i'm not i'm not bringing shedding light on anything that nobody has seen before just trying to put it in terms that everybody can understand and if you do that and you do your research on bitcoin in particular then you will see and understand why this should be in your portfolio and you can choose the amount that you feel comfortable with that's right for you yeah i've read a lot of people uh from saying the same thing. And I, I feel this too. It's like, once you've studied Bitcoin for hundred hours or more, you know, you always come to the same conclusion. You're never going, Oh, I, I want to stay away from this thing. It's like, Oh, give me more. And um, you're right. Like that volatility, you take advantage of it. Like my wife and I, we've been spending a lot of money the last couple of days. Cause it's like Amazon prime day. And that's oh, the God. thing you go shopping when things are way down in price. So what do I do? If I see a drawdown in Bitcoin, that's when I start stacking stats. Yeah, it's a funny thing, right? When people, uh, you see a drawdown in, in the market and it's the only, it's a weird thing. You know, like you just said, if you see a huge sale at Walmart or Amazon, you, there are crowds there, you know, the Amazon website will slow down. There's so many people on it, right? But when you see a sell-off or a, a, a sale day in the markets, people scatter. They don't want to have anything to do with it. You know, whereas that's when you should be buying. That's when you should be looking for deals. You should be in there looking for those, the the assets that you have tremendous uh, confidence in. And if you have high degree of confidence in something, then you shouldn't falter on those days. You know, unless it's it, the reason it's down is because of a material change that would cause you to lose confidence. But if it's if nothing's changed, exactly. Exactly. The fundamentals are only getting better. Um, that's all All I have for you as far as questions go. Um, was there anything else you wanted to kind of leave us with? Like final thought? Anything else? No, I think that's uh, great. I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, you know, uh, if for your listeners that don't know, uh, I, I just launched a hedge fund and it's called the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. And if you're an accredited investor, you can find out more information about that at Bitcoin opportunity.fund. Um, and I launched it with Greg Foss and, you know, Larry Lepard and, and Larry's partner, David and uh, Corey uh, Clipson from Swan and, and Mark Moss. And we're, we're looking at distressed opportunities in the Bitcoin space. And I think that there will be more uh, in the near future because of the a drawdown in the economy. Um, that's number one. And and just for everybody there, I have a newsletter that's free. It's called The Informationist. And for anybody who wants to uh, learn more about these things in simple terms, everything we talked about today is in that uh, is in that newsletter. And uh, you can you can sign up at jameslavish.com. It's it's pretty easy. So um, and that's it. But I really appreciate you having me on. My I pleasure, love, man. I, yeah, I love helping educate people on this stuff. And and anybody who has has questions, you can you can always find me on Twitter, just James Lavish on Twitter. That's it. Awesome. This is uh, even more than I expected out of you. Talking game theory, geopolitics, macroeconomics. I love it. Thank you yeah. so much, James. Um, yeah, you. You, you named a few people just now uh, who I'm going to be interviewing soon, actually. Greg Foss, I have on next week. Um, awesome. I'm in contact with Mark Moss. He said, get back to me next month. I was like, let's do it. Um, Lawrence Lepard, uh, actually, Greg and him, I saw at the Canadian Bitcoin conference a few weeks yeah. ago. Uh, I'm in touch with Lawrence, but he's, I could tell he's a busy guy. He's lifting those weights. Yeah, he is busy. You can get him on. He's great. He'll talk all about all of this stuff and the fed and gold. He's good. He's good. Yeah. Awesome. I appreciate your time. Uh, have a wonderful day and uh, we'll be in touch. Yeah, absolutely. And you, thanks for having me. Take care.